Welcome to the St. John's Hoxton podcast. We are a local church in East London, here to be a beacon of hope for Hoxton. And our mission is to worship God, make disciples, share Jesus, and transform Hoxton. Friends, we're drawing towards the end of our sermon series this autumn, looking at the words and works of Jesus and over the past few weeks we've been exploring things that Jesus did and also things that he said to try and learn a little bit more about how Jesus himself um, shows us how to live life in all its fullness and instructs us uh, and teaches us about our life. And um, we're going to look at the theme today, really pivoting from that very uh, final little paragraph that Will read to us to think about what Jesus had to say about scripture about the Bible. How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken, Jesus said to these two with whom he was walking. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. That's really the springboard for my talk today, is how Jesus opens up the scriptures, the Bible, to teach his followers, his disciples. We're exploring what Jesus believed and said about the nature of scripture and what he has to say about the Bible. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would pour out your spirit upon us to open our ears, our minds, our hearts to hear and receive your most holy word to us. And in our reflection and contemplation to perceive new truths, new and deeper realities about your will for us and your purpose for all the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 24 is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. And when I very first visited this church and came through the doors, uh, Back in the beginning, the spring of 2010, I'd never been in here before that. I came here in the spring of 2010. Uh, The first thing I noticed when I walked through the doors was this painting at the very east end uh, of Jesus with two disciples, one of them named Cleopas, because this is a painting, a depiction of this scene in Luke chapter 24. And if we had read on in Luke chapter 24, we would hear how after this walk along the road in which Jesus instructed them from the scriptures that concerned himself, they came to an inn and they went in and they stopped and they invited Jesus to stay with them because he was going to go and walk further. But the disciples said, stay and eat with us. And when he broke bread at the table, their eyes were opened and they perceived that he was Jesus the Lord that they knew and had followed, who had been crucified just a few days earlier, who had risen again from the dead. It was one of his resurrection appearances. But he was not recognized by them while walking along the road. He was revealed in the breaking of the bread. And yet one of the things I love about Luke chapter 24 is it holds together this idea that scripture reveals Jesus as well as the sacrament revealing Jesus. Jesus discloses himself in both. And it says in the passage that Will read for us, that beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained everything in scripture concerning himself. Later on in the same chapter, Jesus appears to the disciples another time in a different place. 
And at that point, he references explaining what's written about him in Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. He references the three great divisions of Jewish scripture, and I'll say a little bit more about that in just a moment. But as we begin, I want to make a few initial remarks about Jesus and the role of scripture in his life as a first century faithful, obedient Jew. Then I want to just suggest uh, four contemporary objections that people might have uh, to how Jesus might speak about scripture and the role of scripture in his life. And then I want to try and look at three things that we see in the life of Jesus uh, that can reveal to us and teach us something about how he perceives scripture. before we conclude. And I'm going to try and do it fairly briefly because we are late on in our service. Let's begin with um, just reminding ourselves that Jesus uh, lived, walked on earth as a first century faithful and observant Jewish boy. We know that he conformed to the normal rituals of Second Temple Judaism. Uh, that the second, when we say Second Temple, we mean the temple that was rebuilt after the siege of Jerusalem in the sixth century uh, and, its dis- and the destruction of the temple. So the rebuilding um, that's account, uh, 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 recounted in Ezra and Nehemiah. And what this means is that Jesus would have learned to read the scrolls of Torah, the law, um, as well as the wisdom and the prophetic writings in the Old Testament scriptures, the the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. And and this collection was known as the Tanakh, and and that was comprised of three sections. The Torah, which is the Pentateuch, so uh, the first five books of the Bible. Um, Then the Nephim, the prophets, uh, and then the Ketuvim, which are writings. And, and the third section, the Ketuvim, contained the Psalms, the wisdom literature, like, um, like Proverbs, Job, contained uh, the book of Daniel, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Ruth, various bits of history. Uh, so you've got these three major sections, uh, the, 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 what were traditionally ascribed to Moses, the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the law, um, the prophetic writings, uh, all of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, right through to Obadiah, the shortest of the prophetic writings in, in, in the Old Testament scriptures, uh, and the Ketuvim, these writings. So when Jesus references, um, wanting to interpret to them and explain to them what was concerning him in Moses, the prophets, and in the Psalms, he's referencing these three great sections. In other words, all of it. So what, what we have in what we call the Old Testament, the, the Jewish or Hebrew scriptures, um, Jesus sees all of it as scripture, as the Bible. And Jesus probably knew the Jewish scriptures mainly in Greek. There was a very famous uh, translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek completed in Alexandria for um, Jews dispersed across the ancient Near East uh, in in the diaspora. Uh, And that was translated around the mid-third century BCE. And when Jesus quotes scripture in Matthew's gospel, um, 10% of it is from Hebrew, uh, sort of the earlier Hebrew uh, translations and traditions, 90% of it is from, is, can be traced directly to the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. We know from Luke chapter 2 that at the age of 12, Jesus was able to listen, discuss, and debate with teachers of the law in the temple. So he'd been reading this stuff, and he understood it, and he was able to have conversations, and that was normal and expected. And we know from Luke chapter 4 that Jesus was able to enter the synagogue, navigate his way through the scrolls, long scrolls, not books with pages and page numbers, but long scrolls, navigate his way through it until he found the place where it's written in the prophet Isaiah, And then he read out loud and said, this scripture is fulfilled in the hearing of the congregation. 
We know that Jesus quoted the Jewish scriptures extensively. That is both in quantity, but also in scope. So he quotes frequently uh, Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, uh, Jewish scriptures, when he's speaking with his uh, his conversation partners, and he also quotes from a wide variety of parts of the Jewish scripture. He quotes rightly from the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nephilim, the Ketuvim. So this, this term Tanakh is uh, taking the, the first letter of each of those sections, Torah, uh, Nephilim, and Ketuvim. Um, Tanakh, that's how you get it. Uh, You don't need to know that, but it's interesting. So Jesus was saturated in scripture and he had a scriptural imagination in his engagements and his responses to those he encountered. He was one of those people whose mind would just have gone to the Psalms or the writings or the prophet and could just draw easily upon the Bible in a way that many of us would envy and seek to uh, emulate. You know, sometimes you meet those people, don't you? And they just remember huge amounts of scripture and you know that they've been reading the Bible and they just know their way around it and they can draw upon it easily. Jesus was absolutely one of those people. Scholars have identified around 180 verses of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels which are either direct quotation or direct allusion to the Jewish scriptures. So 10% of everything that Jesus said is drawn directly from the Jewish scriptures. So I guess the ultimate question though for us in our age is, did Jesus think that scripture was somehow the word of God or God's divine command to humankind? And did he therefore treat it as authoritative, normative and regulative for his life? Did Jesus actually think that the Bible was where you went to find out what God thought and said and commanded? Did Jesus think that the Bible was where you could discern and learn God's will for our lives and receive instruction? And then depending on how we answer that question, the related question for us is, will we be like Jesus or do we prefer another way? So there's a few objections, uh, and you'll see when I get to the conclusion that, um, so spoiler alert as it were, conclusion at this point, Jesus believed that scripture was the divine word of God and that it was authoritative and regulative and normative for how a person should live. Uh, And we'll get there in a moment. But some people would object to that today. And there are some objections, and I just want to open up these objections. And maybe you might resonate with moments where your own heart or your mind has also objected to the idea that God speaks through the Bible. Maybe you don't. Maybe it's very easy and natural for you to just make that statement. But here are four possible objections. So the first one is this. Ever since the rise of literary and textual criticism in the 18th and 19th century, there's been growing skepticism in Western society concerning whether what is recorded in scripture is accurate or reliable. And some people would say that the nature of manuscript copies and translation introduces too much doubt into the reliability of our modern Bibles. We can't really know what the writers were saying, and therefore we can't really know what God might be saying, and therefore, because there's always a question mark or a caveat, we can't ever uh, 
talk about sort of absolute instruction or uh, God's command being revealed to us in the Bible. And, 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 and gradually and increasingly we think, well, the Bible is an interesting source document. It's an interesting historical text. It's, it can be a resource for our lives, but not really very much more. Some will say as well, related to this, that modern science has proved some of the reports of the Bible to be false. This is called demythologization. And it was incredibly popular and powerful in the West during the 20th century, especially from the 1950s onwards. Uh, One of the great scholars associated with this movement was, in many ways, a brilliant scholar called Rudolf Bultmann. Um, But actually... The movement of demythologization was saying some of these things reported in the Bible we know can't happen because science has told us they don't happen. People don't walk on water and therefore there must be some other explanation. And some have advocated moral or allegorical readings of scripture so that we don't expect things that are reported in the Bible that they actually happened but they're stories that will teach us or reveal to us some universal human principle about peace or love or harmony. Classic example is uh, the account of the feeding of the 5,000. You remember in the the story of the Bible, um, uh, in in John's report, uh, a boy brings two fish and five loaves to Jesus, and Jesus gives it to the disciples to distribute, and they're thinking, this is nuts. How on earth is this going to go anywhere? But they find that as they rip and share and give out the bread, it it never runs out. It just keeps on going, a bit like um, the widow in Nain and her jar of oil. and, but the moral or allegorical interpretation of that passage under the demythologization movement would say, well, it didn't really happen because bread and fish don't really multiply. Actually, the little boy's generosity shamed and embarrassed all the other people there to pull out the food that they were hiding secretly and keeping for themselves and share. And here's the universal human moral principle that if we all just treat each other a lot more kindly, a lot more generously, there'll be enough to go around. So that you can see that's the sort of approach and how that would work. But the trouble is that once you don't accept the events recorded as authoritative, it's very easy to then move to not accepting any of the teaching or instruction as authoritative. And of course, you end up with the idea that the resurrection of Jesus is some sort of moral or allegorical truth about the possibility of overcoming trial or suffering, rather than the idea that God might have intervened decisively in history to change the world. So that's the first objection. Second objection is related to it, and you can see these first two are really sort of, as it were, intellectual objections, and then the the next two uh, objections I'll share are probably more ethical um, or personal objections. Some would read parts of scripture uh, and suggest that Jesus' own approach to reading scripture itself undermined the idea of authority. Some would read the six antitheses in the Sermon on the Mount as suggesting that Jesus himself contradicted scripture. So you you remember this is the passage in Matthew 5 and 6 where Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Right? So it's like, here's what was said in the scripture and now I'm telling you something different. And so some people would object to the idea of scripture as authoritative because they would say, well, if Jesus reinterpreted it, then why shouldn't we? But actually, Jesus is criticizing the oral traditions of interpretation of the law that make it less demanding, rather than critiquing what is actually written. By contrast, and we'll come on to this later, uh, 
Jesus is very clear when he quotes scripture. He will say, it is written. When he's resisting the temptations uh, of the evil one in the wilderness, he says, it is written. But on this case, he's saying, you have heard it said. And what he is quoting is some of the oral traditions that interpret the law to try and apply it and work out how to uh, manage it in life. And if anything, Jesus takes the command of scripture and intensifies it with his, but I say to you, rendering. So remember the example where Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, if you've even looked at somebody lustfully, it's one and the same thing. So he's actually intensifying rather than undermining. He's saying, don't abuse people made in God's image. That's the same. So there's sort of two intellectual objections people might have to the idea that uh, because scripture was authoritative in Jesus' life, it should be authoritative in ours. Third one, uh, some believe that if Jesus is the one who mediates God's presence to us, then we need no other mediator. Wasn't the veil ripped in two at Jesus' death? You know, isn't the partition gone? Don't we now all have immediate access to Jesus because of what he's done? We don't need priests, we don't need Bibles, we don't need churches. You know, Jesus has made himself available to us. I just follow Jesus. I don't need an authority in my life. Now, this can be particularly tempting, actually, to those in the Pentecostal or charismatic tradition because we can prioritize spiritual revelation over scriptural authority. As an aside, one of the funny... There's a, there's a Christian satirical website called Babylon Bee, and they had a very funny little spoof article a few years ago which was announcing the publication of a new charismatic believer's Bible which contained 80 blank pages at the back of it for you to write down your own personal revelation. Um, I thought it was a little close to the bone uh, and therefore funny. But the problem is that we, along with all humanity, have a continual tendency to make or remake Jesus in our own image. Great um, 19th century atheist philosopher uh, Ludwig Feuerbach uh, debunking claims to Christian truth said that when Christian man talks of God it is as though he is looking down a deep dark well and in the, ref in, in the reflection fractured and distorted of himself in the water below, he sees and proclaims God. Uh, his, his analogy was that he says, you know, when, when people are say, saying, talking about Jesus, talking about God, and we're just really sort of talking about manifestations of ourselves. Uh, actually, the 20th century theologian Karl Barth thought this was brilliant analysis and thought that's exactly right. He said, you cannot talk about God by talking about man in a loud voice. And in doing so, he exposes the risk and the tendency to think, Jesus must really be just quite a lot like me. And whatever my preferences or thoughts or hopes are, that's probably what Jesus wants. So we all have that temptation to make Jesus in our own image. But how do we know that the Jesus we follow or proclaim is the Jesus of history, the actual God incarnate who lived, who died, who rose again? Without the testimony, the words of scripture. It's very hard to know. In reality, we often use the I just follow Jesus line to avoid doing the hard work of learning from him and understanding what he teaches us and how he instructs us for our lives. We want the shortcut, but we may end up with a savior made in our own image and that will be no savior at all. A final um, 
objection that people might have to the idea that Jesus viewed scripture as authoritative in his life and expected it to be authoritative in the lives of his followers is that we simply don't like the instruction we read in the Bible. And therefore, we would rather have a Jesus who rebels against biblical authority because that would give us a mandate and permission to rebel against the bits that we don't like. And in this case, we probably like those posters that were popular with Jesus in the 80s, Jesus as Che Guevara, the kind of freedom fighter who takes his stand against uh, nasty kind of political or institutional authority. We imagine Jesus as a freedom fighter, maybe a Jeremy Corbyn, maybe even a Piers Corbyn anti-vaxxer, who knows? But any time there is authority, institution, uh, any tradition, we think Jesus is always on the side of those who are saying, Yabu sucks to whoever's in power. And we may well want to see in Jesus' challenge to the religious authorities of his day, a challenge to scriptural authority. Because then we could be justified in pursuing the same course of action while still, be, while still claiming to be followers of Jesus. And we have to be really honest about this. We live in an anti-institutional and anti-authoritarian age where we believe that true freedom is the right of every human person and that true freedom is to be found in complete autonomy to define ourselves, our identity, our reality, as we feel it or we would like it rather than as things actually are. We don't want to be labeled or put in a box. Now, there may be some good things about this line of thought, but it can lead us to a radical individualism where we refuse any external institution, instruction, or authority. And actually, our society is becoming incredibly confused about all of this, isn't it, at the moment? It's not leading to a more um, integrated harmonious and peaceful society, we're we're finding a more polarized and fragmented society. Uh, These freedoms uh, that we're pursuing in the freedom from authority or institution or tradition or rule or regulation uh, is not on the whole making people happier or more loving. So the question is, is that how Jesus actually was? Was he a, um, you know, in, in in rebelling and pushing back against some of the religious authorities of his day? Was he, was he uh, overthrowing scriptural authority? Uh, and if we pursue, but if we pursue this approach, are we out of step with how Jesus treated scripture? So three things briefly about scripture in the life of Jesus. Um, and, and then I'll conclude and we'll carry on. Jesus, I believe, viewed scripture as authoritative and normative and regulative for his whole understanding of his life, his mission, his conduct, his purpose. And I think we see that in three ways. I think we see it in his personal conduct and ethics. I think we see it in his understanding of his vocation and mission. And I think we see it in how he engages in controversy and debate. Those are the three things I want to touch on. So firstly, in personal conduct and ethics. I mentioned beforehand that Jesus quotes scripture to combat the devil's temptations in the wilderness. The Bible governs his behavior and conduct. On each occasion of temptation, Jesus quotes words from Deuteronomy. And he voluntarily submits to the authority of God's word in scripture. He uses this phrase, it is written. In Greek, uh, gegraphti, like graph. Uh, graphic, written. It's written. 
And that simple claim is enough for Jesus. No debate, no interpretation, just obedience to God's command. Remember that in his famous teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, Jesus said this, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen. He's referring here to the writings, the writings of Jewish scripture, that which has been written down on the scrolls recorded, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This becomes a springboard and a preface to that, those antitheses that I mentioned before. You have heard it said, but I say to you, he's saying, actually, far from having come to abolish what's been written in the Jewish scriptures and handed down to us, I've come to fulfill them and actually I'm going to intensify them. The righteousness, the conduct, this, this rule is there as a baseline. I'm going to teach you how to live it out and apply it in your life. You've heard it said this, but it's so much more. It's not just, oh, I've not committed adultery, tick. It's how are you expressing, how, how are you honoring people in the way you think about them, look at them, speak of them, treat them. So in Jesus' personal conduct and ethics, he is obedient to scripture and he sees scripture as being the springboard into uh, everything that he wants to teach and demonstrate about how we live. Second, in vocation and mission, Jesus reveals that he sees scripture as normative and, and, and it's a resource that shapes his identity. Jesus understands his own vocation, his calling and his purpose in scriptural terms. In the quotations from the Old Testament and the way he describes himself, he draws upon the image of the suffering servant in Isaiah who must suffer for the sake of God's people, who according to Isaiah 53 will suffer and give his life as an offering for sin but then be vindicated and see the light of life. So Jesus is saying that his vocation, his purpose, the very reason he's here is to fulfill what God has promised and foreseen uh, in the writings about the Messiah, about the suffering servant. But he also draws upon scripture to describe himself as the son of man. And I spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, evoking that passage in Daniel chapter seven, when Daniel in a vision sees one with the appearance like the son of a man um, coming to the right hand of the ancient of days in heaven and being given all authority, all dominion, all power, all glory. Jesus describes himself as the son of man, evoking that vision of Daniel 7, proclaiming himself to be the one who will come into God's presence to the right hand of the Father to receive all authority, all dominion, all power. I said two weeks ago that I think that's actually about his ascension when Jesus comes into the presence of God after his resurrection and that now, Jesus rules at the right hand of the Father, that, the, that his second coming has already begun because his second coming his, was coming into his authority at the right hand of the Father and that rule, that authority is now being worked out through the church, through the mission of God's kingdom, transforming the world, awaiting its final renewal. So Jesus draws upon uh, the writings of Isaiah and the writings of Daniel specifically to think about his own vocation and mission. 
But then, thirdly, in controversy and debate, Jesus draws upon Scripture. Two great groups that he debated with were the Pharisees and the Sadducees, two major uh, religious uh, authority factions of the day. The Sadducees tended to subtract from Torah, from the law. The traditional structuring of the temple authority was their priority. But they weren't so rigorous in uh, the reading, understanding, learning, teaching, and application of the writings of uh, the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nephilim, the Kevotim. Um, so Mark 12, 24, Jesus says to them, the Sadducees, you're in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. You don't know the scriptures. You're just not reading them. You don't know them. You're not actually listening to what God has to say through the scriptures. And that's the problem that they're in. That's why they can't see and perceive uh, that the Messiah of God will have to suffer and die and then be raised. The Pharisees, by contrast to the Sadducees, added to the Torah. They were concerned to keep the law, the command of God, with such rigor that they added lots of additional regulations, layers of regulation, to avoid the possibility of breaking Torah, but also to put on it an interpretation that would suit their own needs themselves. So in Mark chapter 7, verses 9 and 13, Jesus accuses the Pharisees of setting aside the command of God in the commandments to honor their father and mother by observing their own traditions. So they had this uh, tradition called korban, which meant that you could take a pot of your money and you say, well, this is money that I'm going to give to God in the temple. And therefore, I don't need to look after my mum and dad in their old age. Remember, there's no pensions, there's no welfare state, there's no retirement homes or care homes. If you have elderly relatives, they're your responsibility. You look after them. And that's what it means to honor your father and mother in this context. But, but the Pharisees had created this tradition that kind of got them off the hook by saying, well... They'll be all right. Old goat, leave them to themselves. I'll take this pot, pot of money. And I'm, this, is, this is what I'm going to give to God in the temple, so I don't need to look after them. And Jesus says they've nullified the command of God with their tradition. So actually, the layer of interpretation they put on has gotten in the way of keeping Scripture. The point is that Jesus took the authority of the Scriptures more seriously than these other groups that were the religious rigorists of their day. So in his personal conduct and ethics, in his understanding of his own vocation and mission, in controversy and debate, Jesus saw scripture, the Hebrew scriptures, the Jewish scriptures, the Bible, as being authoritative and normative and regulative for how he should live and how his followers should live. The question for us today, then, as we conclude, is if Scripture was authoritative in Jesus' life, how should we respond? What role does Scripture have in our life? I should hasten to add, this is not a sermon series on the Bible and how on earth we read the Bible. We might do that another time, and that would be very interesting, but it would take us far too long. Instead, I just want to uh, lean upon um, the thoughts of John Stott, great teacher, uh, of a great British um, evangelical teacher of the 20th century. I mean, he lived this century as well, but he died this century, but most of his work was in the 20th century. And, and John Stott said, it really depends on what view we have of Jesus. If we believe that Jesus is our teacher and our Lord, 
then we will have a consequential view of the Bible, of Scripture. This is what he said. He said, if Jesus Christ is truly our teacher and our Lord, we are under both his instruction and his authority. We must therefore bring our mind into subjection to him as our teacher and our will into subjection to him as our Lord. We have no liberty to disagree with him or to disobey him. So we bow to the authority of scripture because we bow to the authority of Christ. In some ways I think that in those words John Stott has described a huge part of the life of a disciple, a Christian, a follower of Jesus, someone apprenticing to Jesus, someone learning the way of Jesus. We bring our mind our mind into subjection to him as our teacher. That's hard to do because we don't like being subject to anyone or anything really. But we bring our mind into subjection to him as our teacher and we bring our will, how we're gonna live, our volition. We bring our will into subjection to him as our Lord. That, it seems to me, is the life of a disciple. Learning to have our minds, our heads, our hearts, our conduct, our lives transformed by being subject to Jesus as our Lord. So we bow to the authority of scripture because we bow to the authority of Christ. We bow to the authority of scripture because we bow to the, the authority of Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the St. John's Hoxton podcast. New talks will be uploaded every week from all of our services. And do check out our website, stjohnshoxton.org.uk, for more information.